Listeners, welcome back. You are now listening to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. Our Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries have changed our homepage. It is still the same website. www. heartandsoul.org, but we are now coming to you with a more simple and user-friendly design. You can now listen to all broadcasts through your smartphone by accessing your Android and Apple Store. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries and you can download all broadcasts. For more information, please contact 602-866-8999. serve Christ without personally knowing Him? Or can you serve as a pastor without meeting Christ? It may not make sense, but looking back, it seems that throughout Christian history, there have been numerous occasions where this has happened. It is pretty common to hear of instances where people have grown up in a Christian household, came to know Christ, and went to seminary school to become pastors. Eventually, those who have not actually met Christ and had a personal relationship with Him will hit a wall and fail or no longer be able to serve in the ministry. The hymn titled, Jesus I My Cross Have Taken, was written by a pastor named Henry Francis Light. He was born the third child of four in a small town called Enham in Scotland. Unlike most fathers, Henry's father did not feel the need to support his family. He was interested in fishing and shooting, and there were so many financial difficulties that his family was separated. Henry was orphaned at an early age in Ireland. Despite these rough circumstances and lacking the love a young boy should receive from his parents, he was educated at a royal school. He studied hard and ended up attending and studying at Trinity College in Dublin. During his university course, he distinguished himself by gaining the English Prize poem on three occasions. He graduated in 1815 at the age of 22 took Anglican holy orders and served a number of parishes in Ireland. He wasn't sure if this was the right calling for him and questioned if God would be happy with what he was doing. This was because he did not personally experience meeting Christ. We'll come back to share more after our first song.
Pastor Henry Light leaves to go to a church in Ireland without any conviction in knowing that he had a calling or that God would be pleased with his works. After three years had passed, one day when he was 25, he was informed that one of his friends, a pastor, became critically ill. At the time, his friend was serving a church in the town, but surprisingly, he did not have confidence in his salvation through Christ. As a pastor who didn't have faith and whose life was also at risk, he confessed to his friend Henry that he didn't know if he was saved or not. After hearing this from his friend, Henry started to read the Bible and looked at what Paul wrote regarding how a person can be saved. They started to look for scripture on salvation and about life after death. By reading the word and searching the scriptures together, both Henry and his dying friend came to a deeper faith and started to experience the guidance of the Holy Spirit and received confidence in their salvation. They started to feel an experience and know that everything is by the grace of God. Pastor Henry Light's friend received full confidence in his salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ and he passed away shortly afterwards. After witnessing his friend's passing, Henry came back home and wrote this in his diary. I was greatly affected by the whole matter and brought to look at life and its issue with a different eye than before. And I began to study my Bible and preach in another manner than I had previously done. It is in 1817, after reading the scripture together with his friend who was critically ill and who later received confidence in greater faith and also realizing and learning about a new life after death, at the age of 24, that Pastor Henry Light promises to himself that he will spread the gospel with all that he has. At the age of 30, in 1823, Light moves to Lower Brixham, a small village in Devon, and serves at a church for 24 years. The backdrop of this village was a beautiful ocean. The village of Devon was a fishing village and was filled with fishermen. The people of this village had very aggressive personalities and weren't very welcoming to people that came from other areas. When Pastor Light started his ministry in the village, the natives there caused him to struggle since they were not that welcoming to him. He also suffered a lot because his health was very weak to the changing climate. His health continued to deteriorate, but he continued to read the scripture and pray deeply. He had the perspective that since his Lord suffered, he would suffer as well. He continued to care for and show the villagers love. No matter how they treated him or disrespected him, he loved them with a warm heart and served them wholeheartedly. The people of the village began to witness this and began to change. People were very touched and moved by the devotion of Pastor Light, and slowly they began to join him in his ministry. People began to send their children to Sunday school at his church, and eventually large crowds of Sunday school children gathered and later he actually led and taught about 800 children. The hymn that I introduced today, Jesus I My Cross Have Taken, is a hymn that was written in 1824 when he was first settled in Brixham. Just by reading the first verse, you can feel how strong his love for Christ was. Let me read the first verse to you. Jesus I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence, my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all life sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Just like the lyrics of this hymn, even with his poor health, with his passion and loyalty, Henry Light served for 24 years.
Jesus, I my cross have taken All to leave and follow Destitute, despised, forsaken Thou from hence my all shall be Perish every fond ambition All I've sought or hoped or Ah. Uh-huh.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is the number one reason to trust in God, Part One, based on Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 through 20. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. Chapter 14 is an incredible contrast because now. John keeps looking in his vision, and in chapter 14, verse 1, John says, "Well, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads." Okay, you see a total difference now. Okay, you're looking at the beast, and you're looking at everyone worshiping him, and the mark of the beast on their foreheads. Now you see Jesus standing on Mount Zion, and he's got his people with him, 144,000. Remember we talked about the 144,000 in chapter seven? Those were the Jewish believers, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, and they received the mark of God on their heads. So these people are standing with Christ, you know, as the other people with the the 666 on their heads were, were standing with Satan. And it says that uh, they have uh, his father, his name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. And then listen to what what happens, because now you get to hear from heaven. This is an incredible scene. Verse two、it、says, "I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. 
the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. As Jesus is standing on this mountain with 144,000, you know, the 144,000 with the seal of God on their foreheads, it says, then here's the sound coming from heaven. Imagine this. It's a sound that is so loud, it says it's like a rushing river or like thunder. Okay, we just heard massive thunder or just been near a, a river that was just rushing so loud. I mean, it's majestic. It's huge. It's almost scary at times. But then it says that as that, that sound is going, it says the sound is, it's the sound of harpists playing their harps. Can you imagine something so loud, but it's harpists that sound like thunder? So it's like this beautiful thunder that's playing. And, uh, and it says that uh, they're singing a song before the throne. Now, who is singing the song? It seems like this is going back to chapter 5. Remember we talked about how there's a hundred million angels worshiping Jesus? Picture a hundred million angels playing harps and singing to Jesus as Jesus is standing on this mountain surrounded by his 144,000 followers. That's a pretty incredible scene. You know, it's, it's almost like, you know how, uh, you know, when I read chapter 13 and go all the way into 14, it's like, you ever watch the beginning of a basketball game, you know, like the finals, when, uh, and, and the first thing they do is they introduce the opponents, the opposing team, and as each player comes out, everyone's booing, boo, boo, you know, you idiot, you know, they're all yelling, and then suddenly they announce the home team, the good guys, and the whole place, you know, lights go out, you know, and then suddenly spotlights, and the whole place just goes wild. Well, when I read this chapter, that's what it feels like to me. You know, for two chapters, you've been hearing about the enemy. You've been hearing about everything that's going on there. But then now you see Jesus Christ standing on the mountain. He has returned. He's got 144,000 with him. There's 100,000 angels playing their harps, singing, worshiping him. It's just an incredible, incredibly magnificent scene. And it describes this 144,000, and it says that these 144,000, they've kept themselves pure. Not like the rest of the world and all those people that are worshiping the Antichrist, this 144,000, it says they've kept themselves pure to the point where that they did not defile themselves with women. Now, it's not just talking about immorality here. I believe it's talking about these people didn't even get married. They even kept away from uh, relationships with women. Altogether. Now, that is not to say that if you're married, you have defiled yourself with one of those evil women. You know, that is not saying that at all. In fact, God is the one who instituted marriage. It's a very beautiful institution. Um, but do you remember in 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul talked about marriage? And uh, he really was talking about the end times when he says, because time is short, those of you who are married should live as though you are not. Um, it's talking about the intensity of the end times. There's going to be so much stuff going on that God just totally be devoted to God. Absolutely devoted to God. And these 144,000 want to be so committed during this end time intensity that they just totally devoted themselves to serving God. And it says that no lie was, was found in their mouths. These guys were just totally honest, totally focused on God. And what I love is in the end of chapter 4, I mean, at the end of verse 4, 
when it says, they were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Okay, don't miss this picture. Offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. The picture of the first fruit is this. It was a picture of the Old Testament principle of the tithe. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, it talks about how you're supposed to give a tithe to God. The word tithe means 10%. But it wasn't just any 10%. It wasn't, I spend everything I can, and if I have 10% left over, I'll give it to God. The idea of the tithe was always the first 10%. Is the idea of the first fruits. Is whenever the crop, the harvest came in, you would take your best and give it to God and say, God, this belongs to you because I wouldn't have anything without you. The idea of the first fruits was, was the best of your flock. If you had a bunch of animals, you wouldn't give God your leftovers. The diseased animals. You would pick out the best animals you could find and offer those to God because those now were your first fruits. See, it's so different from today where we give God our leftovers, or I shouldn't say we, I should say a lot of believers, you know, give God their leftovers. And, um, and the idea of giving God their leftovers is, well, you know, I spent everything on myself and got a little bit left over, or I don't have anything left over, I'm in debt, because I overspent for myself. And we kind of give God nothing or less than our best. And yet, Scripture never allows for that. Scripture has always said, give God your best. And you see what the picture is here? It's saying that these people, this 144,000, are actually like the best of the land. They're taken from among men. From all the people on the earth, God takes this one group of 144,000, and they are given to God like an offering of, this is the best the earth has. From all the people of the earth, these are the first fruits. Isn't that an awesome picture? It's saying, look, here's a group of people who have totally lived for you. They didn't defile themselves. They're not worshiping the Antichrist. They didn't take the mark. They're totally serving you, totally honest people. And they're an offering to you. They're set apart for you. You guys, the truth is, is, that's what you and I should aspire to be today. To say, God, I know what the world is doing and what they say about you, but I'm setting myself apart from them. And I want to be an offering to you. I want to be like the first fruits. I want to be the the person, the man or the woman of God that just says, you know what? I don't buy into that philosophy. I've set myself apart from you. That's what set apart, that's what holy means. The word holy means set apart. When God says be holy, that means set yourselves apart. Be separate from me. Be the first fruits. And, And that's the way I pray that Cornerstone Church really becomes. Is this pocket of a few thousand people here in this place that says, you know what, I know that the world really doesn't worship you. I know the rest of Simi Valley doesn't really serve you or honor you. But we want to be a group of people that says, you know what, we're not going to buy in to a lot of the sinful things that the rest of the world does. We want to separate ourselves, set ourselves apart for you, and say, look, we're an offering to you, God. I know some of the other churches in town want to do the same thing. We want to set ourselves apart and say, you know what, we are an offering to you, God. And as that's going on, then something pretty intense happens in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, 
the sea and the springs of water. Okay, so as that's going on, you've got this scene with Jesus on the mountain and voices from heaven worshiping him, singing to him. Then suddenly an angel flies by in midair, and it says this angel is proclaiming a loud voice, and says it is proclaiming the eternal gospel. What does that mean? The eternal gospel. The word gospel means good news. When we say, hey, I want to share the gospel with someone, it's saying, I want to share the good news. What's the good news? The good news is that even though I have totally blown it, I have totally offended God in my life. And I don't know if you've ever done this. You ever uh, sit down, you, you look through your life, and you look at some of the mistakes you've made, some of the things you've done, some of the people you've hurt, and you can just kind of beat yourself up over it, and you just feel terrible. I still do this sometimes. Well, the good news is, is I can put that behind me. The good news is that God says, even though I know that you have done those things, I can still forgive you and I still love you. The good news is that even though I have offended God with my life, he still loves me. And he loved me so much, the Bible said, that he sent his son to die on a cross for me so that he is not going to punish me at the end of my life for what I've done wrong. And I've done some horrible things. And many of us have. Things where we look back and go, oh man, I can't believe I did that. I'm going to have to pay for that. And the good news is, no, you don't have to. Jesus paid for that on the cross. And here this angel is proclaiming it to the whole world so that there's no excuse. Everyone will hear the good news. From every tribe, every language, every nation, they're all going to hear it here from this angel who proclaims it. But what does he say? Listen to the, the phrase in verse 7. What does his angel scream out in a loud voice? He says, fear God and give him glory. I want you to imagine something. Okay, let's imagine service is over right now, okay? And you're walking out to your car. And as you're walking out to your car, you see an angel in heaven flying by. And this angel screams out, Fear God and give Him glory. What would you do? Seriously. You're about to go to your car and you see this angel scream out, Fear God. Give Him glory. What would you do at that moment? Would you just kind of say, whatever, and get in your car? I'm going to go about my own life. I'm going to do my own thing. It's not about God. It's about making me happy. I want to make a name for myself. No way. Angel says, fear God. You guys, and understand something. That is a phrase you don't hear in churches very much anymore. Fear God. Yet it's all through the Bible. And it's, it's amazing how many times I hear someone hear, you know, say these words from the Bible. and say, yeah, it says fear God, but it doesn't really mean fear God. What? What do you mean by that? It, it means what it says. You fear Him. All I know is that if you could get a tiny glimpse of God, you would pass out. There's a sense in which we reverence Him. And you guys, this is not just respect. There's a lot of people I respect. This is talking about something that is left for God and God alone. A holy reverence, a holy fear for who He is. Why? 
Why should we fear God? Why, why should we give Him glory? Why don't I just live each day going, you know what? I want to do what I want to do. And I want to build a name for myself. I want to enjoy myself. I'm not worried about pleasing God and giving Him glory. I'm thinking about pleasing myself. Why should I fear Him and give Him glory? Well, he explains this, because the time of judgment has come. The hour of His judgment has come. You guys, why does everyone need to fear God and give Him glory? Because he's going to come one day to judge you. And you're saying, but you know what? No one else tells me i got to fear God and give him glory. Well, no one else is going to judge you at the end either. You guys, fear God and give him glory. This life is not about you. It's not about making a name for yourself, building up possessions for yourself. It is about there's one being right now who exists that we have to give all the glory to and fear That's the eternal God who has saved us. And then he says, after that, he says, worship him. He says, worship, that means to to bow down or to kiss. It's the idea of what you would do is is you would get on your knees and kiss someone's feet. It says, you do that to God. You stop walking around so proud and you get on your knees and you worship him. It says, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs of water. You worship the one who created this earth. I have said this several times in this church. I believe it is just, it is a horrible thing we do when we take away the creation from God. And we say, I don't think God made it. And we come up with these ridiculous human theories that it came from nothing. Remember Wednesday night, those of you who are here, when Dr. Bookman was talking, if you weren't here, you blew it. It was incredible. Um, but he was talking about how the heavens declare the glories of God and, and how we're just talking about just, just this world we live in just screams out God. I mean, how in the world can you believe that this whole system that we live in came from nothing? And you guys, and I realize that right now the world is even wising up and you, you start reading the books lately and they're starting to disprove evolution. People don't even believe in God are questioning because of the advances in biochemistry and everything else. And so I believe evolution's on its way out, and we'll see that in our generation. But before you get so excited, I guarantee you, I promise you, something else will come along and take its place. Because it's great what people are doing to destroy evolution today, but I guarantee you something will come up. Satan will come with something else to replace it before it's gone. It's happened all the time. I mean, it just keeps advancing. And every time they disprove something, they'll come with something new. Remember when they thought that life came from dead meat? You know, years ago, and now was in our science books. And spontaneous generation, all that stuff. They'll just come up with new stuff. And we can laugh at what was written in the, in the books, science books 20, 30 years ago. And they'll laugh at these books that are here today. But something else will come up that will take the glory away from God. And here this angel says, you start worshiping God again for his creation. He's the one that made this earth. Don't try to explain it away by saying that dust is eternal and that that grew into this. He says, you just get on your face and finally acknowledge that there is a God. As Doug said on Wednesday night, he says, you know, you really have to work hard to not believe that there's a designer to this place. You really have to work hard to deny the existence of God. Everything screams out his existence. After that angel flies by, it says another angel follows and it says this, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Big question, who in the world is Babylon the great? 
Now, in the Old Testament, we know that there actually was an empire, the empire, the Babylonian Empire. And, uh, and the Jews of that time found that empire detestable. They were their enemies. They hated the Babylonians. They hated they, Babylon the Great became synonymous with the enemies of God because they were pulling the believers out of their land, Israel, and exiling them into Babylon. And so whenever they would talk about Babylon, the, 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 the empire under Nebuchadnezzar, it was just an evil, evil empire. And, uh, and so the question is, is, well, then who is this in the end times? Who represents Babylon, these enemies of God? And that's a good question. There's some different theories. Some people say Babylon the Great is the U.S. Um, they say, you know, because of its influence and its power. And, uh, you know, we get this phrase here. It says it made... Babylon the Great, which made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Okay, what's it referring to there? The maddening wine of her adulteries. Think about that phrase. It's the idea of you intoxicate someone. You get someone drunk and then you can seduce them and take advantage of them. So somehow some sort of world influence that basically intoxicates the world and, uh, and gets the world to follow her. And... Who that is, we don't know. Could it be the U.S. with all its power and allure, possibly? Some narrow it down more and say maybe it's Hollywood. And you've got, you know, this, this, you know, this beautiful place that, in, that pretty much has infiltrated the whole world. And uh, everyone sees it as this beautiful, glamorous place. And what is it promoting? Everything against scripture. So people say maybe it's that and saying, look, all your, you know, all these uh, musicians, all these actors, actresses that everyone lifts up in such high esteem and worships, you know, for God to say they're done now. Who are you going to worship now? Um, some people say possibly it is um, the Antichrist kingdom at that time where, you know, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, you know, his kingdom that influenced the world. Maybe that's what Babylon the Great describes, that one world religion or, uh, you know, the government system, possibly. Or maybe it's just a city, a city literally called Babylon right there on the Euphrates River. The truth is, is we're not sure, and I don't even want to take any guesses. So there's some options. There's probably plenty more. Your guess is as good as mine. You know, we don't know. You know, like I said, in, in the book of Revelation, there will be times when we go to certain things we don't quite understand.
Gospel Ministry is looking for volunteers in tech editing to ensure the quality of the broadcast and the addition of more encouraging and empowering programs. 
Volunteer hours are three hours a week, and anyone who's had experience with computer before can participate. And don't worry if you're not familiar with the sound editing program. Heart and Soul will provide basic training and editing. So if anyone is interested in helping out our ministry, please contact us at 602-866-8999. Thank you. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. A while back, our Bible study group had a discussion on whether we should help the poor, and if so, to what extent, and if not, why? Surprisingly, many said that if we were to help the poor, it would only make them lazier. Now that may not seem like a totally incorrect opinion, but of course that was only the group's thoughts and assumptions. How would God want us to act towards the poor? Actually, there is so much scripture about the poor and how to act towards them that I cannot possibly share all of it today. Therefore, I'll provide a high-level overview of the biblical view of poverty. Jesus lived a life of poverty. He had no place to lay his head. Through Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40, Jesus said that people who feed, clothe, and look after the poor are considered the same as serving Jesus. On the other hand, he said that people who do not care or look after the poor will be judged. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, the Apostle John also says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Also in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, it says, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Actually, the extent of which Christians care for the poor is an excellent standard that lets us know what kind of relationship we have with God. Proverbs 14.31 says, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. And Proverbs 17.5 says, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. The Bible says that mistreating and taunting the poor is the same as mistreating and taunting our God who created that person. Also, the Bible tells us that taking advantage of the poor to become richer is wrong. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 16 says, he who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. In the same chapter, in verses 22 and 23, Scripture says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. The law also regulates not taking advantage of the poor. Exodus 22.25 says, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. God always thought of the poor and the weak. Therefore, he set many laws for them. When we read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, 
we can find out God's particular care for the poor through the law that allowed the poor to glean the fallen spears of grain. They often argue that helping the poor would make them lazy. It's true that there are people who are lazy. However, as true servants of Christ, we should exercise discernment in serving the poor. We should help the poor who are willing to work so that they can support and care for themselves. Some people argue against the idea of helping the poor because they believe sharing the gospel to save their soul should be the primary concern rather than physical and financial support. So we should spread the gospel before doing anything else. Jesus knows about this better than anyone else since he spent a lot of his lifetime with the poor. And we should remember that he repeatedly taught us in the Bible that we should serve the poor. It is not a sin to become rich. Many characters in the Bible became rich through God's blessings, but it is wrong to not help the poor. It is also wrong to oppress, mock, and look down on the people in poverty. The true servant of God should understand why God gave many talents to him. People who have more should be compassionate towards the poor and share abundantly. Although we should not ask for a reward for doing so, God did promise us that he will bless those who help and share with others. Helping the poor is the right thing to do because it shows God's unchanging moral standards based on his unchanging nature. God is both loving and just. The Bible does not say that everyone should have the same degree of wealth. It also does not say to divide the wealth equally. However, the Bible encourages us that we should love our neighbors and be generous towards them. It is not only required for an individual, but also the church that is the body of Christ to help people in poverty. The church that you serve should also care for the poor and share the gospel. That is what Christians should do. This concludes this week's episode of Christian Ethics. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
After 24 faithful years of ministry, Pastor Henry Light's health condition becomes worse, and he suffers various respiratory illnesses. Eventually, at the age of 51 in 1844, he faints because of his health condition, and three years later, in 1847, he becomes more sick with asthma and tuberculosis. His conditions grew worse and worse, and because of his doctor's orders, Henry Light moves to Italy, an area with a much warmer climate. In September of 1849, with his poor health, he begins to deliver his last farewell sermon. During his last sermon, despite his weak body and his illness with the help of others, he even held communion. Although it may have been a very weary and tiring experience, it was a very moving time and he was able to glorify God. After delivering his farewell sermon, he moved to Nice, France, and two months later died on November 20th. It does not make sense for an individual to pastor or minister a church without personally meeting Christ. However, Henry Francis Light and his friend managed to do this because of the culture and circumstances. Without a calling, Henry Light starts to read the scripture with his dying friend and came to a deeper faith and met Christ. After that very moment, he gave every moment in his whole life to Christ and even in his last days were spent spreading the gospel before he passed away. A question I would like to ask all of our listeners, have you personally met Christ? If you have not, I sincerely hope that you will all meet him through the truth and grace of his word. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week and God bless. Abide with me Fast falls the eventide The darkness deepens Lord with me
life in 